Well, this morning we begin a new study. I've been saying turn over to Daniel for a year. Uh, This morning we get to say, open your Bibles and turn them over to the book of Jude, where we begin our study this morning. You will find Jude is the next to the last book in the New Testament, just before the book of Revelation. Now, you might wonder why I chose Jude. I mentioned this uh, uh, last week or the last one, whenever it was that I mentioned it. One of the reasons I've chosen to do Jude is, A, there are some themes that go along with what we've been looking at in Daniel. So there'll certainly be some continuation of themes that we've already been considering. But one of the primary factors in Jude is his call, and you're going to hear me say this a lot this morning, his call to the church for us to contend for the truth. And if you think about the culture in which we live, the times that we live in, what the, the thing that is most under attack is the truth, the truth of Scripture. There is, you know, it's, it's more common down to try to uh, downplay the objectivity of truth in favor of things that feel true for me or seem good to me or that make life easier or more palatable. And Jude is a book in the New Testament that says, well, no, we have to stand for truth. We have to stand for truth when it's hard, when it's not palatable in a culture that would otherwise love to, to change it to make it seem more amenable to the desires and pleasures of the flesh. And so what we, what we need, you know, we don't need more learning so much as we need encouragement and boldness to say we have the tools that we need to stand for truth and follow God. And Jude is telling us in this letter, stand for truth and follow God and stay on the pathway of righteousness. And so it is an exhortation, and it will be an exhortation to us. We won't spend tons of time in this book. It won't take us long to get through as there are only 25 verses, but I think it's timely and a necessary book. So Jude is going to be a quick study, but a very important one as we consider what is our call in our culture, in society, where we work, where we live, how we interact with people, It's to contend for the truth. And so Jude is telling us that. Well, this morning we're only going to look at the first four verses, give a brief introduction, and lay out the purpose of this letter. So start with me now in Jude, verse 1. This is God's infallible and errant word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we give this time to you. This is your time. We sit before you now to learn, to grow, to be transformed, to be renewed. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit working through your Word, that that's exactly what would happen. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Watching the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been very difficult, just looking at the lives lost, looking at just the total chaos that's happening and seeing people, you know, really bleeding with people for the fact that, you know, they had their lives and now their lives are totally disruptive. Towns are being bombed, you know, people are dying, spouses are being, husbands and sons are being taken away uh, to fight in a war that seems rather senseless from our perspective. 
Well, we know that war is tough because war involves death, it involves violence, it involves aggression. It means that people are absolutely going to be harmed. People made in the image of God, God's image bearers, are going to die. They're going to be hurt. They're going to be mistreated. They're going to be imprisoned. And all the other things that go along with war, that's what makes war so hard. Now, in spite of this, I don't know about you, I found it super inspiring to see the patriotism of the Ukrainians who stand for their place. This is our land, and we're not going down without a fight. We're going to rise up and answer the call, and, and, and Ukrainians from all over the world are coming home to stand with their people. Yes, that's truly inspiring to me, but it's also an event of lamentation, like, why, oh Lord, does this have to happen? Why do these people have to leave their lives behind and come and take up arms and bear arms against an aggressor? Because the human spirit is so given to sin, and when we are lost in sin and we have no value for the image of God and other people, war is easy. Planned Parenthood is easy when you don't see children, child, as the image of God. Yeah, when you take that concept out, evil abounds, and it will abound. But as we are watching these refugees flee, I don't know if you've seen some of the images as they're going over to Poland and the army people from the Ukrainian army are going through the crowd, grabbing men and boys and separating them from their families and sending them back to Ukraine to take up arms and fight. They're being conscripted. Now, why are they being conscripted? Well, they're being conscripted because they are between the ages of 18 and 60 and they are citizens of Ukraine. In other words, the army is saying, because of your citizenship, you're now going to fight with Russia. And beloved, that's a fitting picture for us today. As we look at Jude and what he's calling us to do, he's saying, by virtue of your citizenship in heaven, we are now called to contend for the faith. And we don't get the option of not doing it. We don't get the option of passing on as refugees without ever putting our hands in the fight. As believers in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ this morning for salvation, you and I are called to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that doesn't just mean that we believe it. When we're talking about contending for something, we'll get into this in just a moment, that means we fight for it. In other words, I'm not just commending to you that the faith is good. Now, I'm ready to do battle to stand for truth. And battle we will if we stand for truth in today's world, because the truth of Christ is unpopular. The ethic that rules the Christian life is so out of, out of step with the ethic that the world wants to live by, that if we stand for that ethic, we're going to be contending for the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. Jude is a very, very short letter. Um, it, it, that and Philemon are the two shortest letters in the New Testament. But it is, in many ways, very, very mysterious. How so, Brad? How could Jude be mysterious? Well, for one, the writer of the book of Jude, his name is Judas, his full name. Now, you can imagine why they might not wanted to call this the book of Judas when they were putting the New Testament canon together to eliminate any confusion as to that Judas. He's a different Judas, so we call him Jude. Makes it easy to separate. Um, he is half-brother to Jesus and a brother, as he says here, to James. We know that. But um, here's what we can't say. We don't know exactly when this book was written. 
right? We had, there, there's no real way to date it other than the fact that we know that it had to be after the ascension of Christ, and it had to be long enough for false teachers to slip in. So at least we know it has to be some years after the ministry of Jesus. We also don't know to whom the book was written. He doesn't say that. The assumption of most commentators that I think is correct is that the book is written to the church that he either attended or pastored or had some sort of leadership role in. So this was not just some church that was on a circuit of churches. This would have been a church very personal to him, but the way he writes the letter, he seems to know its people. He seems to know exactly what's going on, and he is writing a letter of concern and exhortation. The brevity of the letter, however, doesn't mean that it's simple. This, this letter is actually super complex regarding the themes that are, that are herein and regarding the language. The Greek is very complex in Jude as well. And so we're looking at a letter that, to me, if you read through the book of Jude, if you've not read this whole letter yet, I would encourage you after church today to just read through it. And I'm telling you, when you read it, it's almost like it was written for today's world and the way that he's laying out the different things we have to fight for. Now, the strength of Jude, what makes it such a strong, good New Testament letter, is that it is calling Christians to contend with false teachers and false teaching. In other words, we can't just sit idly by in a church if false ideas are being promoted from a pulpit. In fact, that is why you're to constantly be studying your word, that you're checking that what I'm telling you is consistent with God's word. That's what's being a faithful, dutiful Christian who wants to contend for the truth that you understand that your call is to listen, yes, but to listen discerningly, with discernment. Is this really lining up with truth? So that when you hear somebody say something, I've, I was watching a talk the other day where this man was trying to redesign the way God has, has laid out sexual ethic and make, make little caveats here and there so it doesn't accord with Scripture. We wanna, when we hear that, we want to be able to say, no, that's wrong. And here's why it's wrong. And here's how I know it's wrong. And here's the truth on which this ethic is actually built. And we've got to stand here, not here, because this seems to be popular in culture right now. It's important that we live that way. And so Jude is saying, contend with false teachers, contend with false teaching. This is a battle that every generation has to fight. Every one of us, none of us get off the hook with this battle, with this fight. Because the constant push is to redesign the truth of God's Word, or to redesign the certain ethic that God has prescribed so that that ethic and truth can be more commiserate with the passions of the flesh, plain and simple, so that we can live more fleshly lives. Well, if we can't let that stand, we're called to fight. We're called to contend for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. Now, Some will say, well, no, we can't contend for the faith. That's going to come off unloving. And if we say something, we're going to lose the person. And so we can't really say anything. We just need to pray for that brother or sister. Beloved of God, that is a lie. That is a lie. False ideas and false uh, things that come off as false that people are presenting as truth, they need to be challenged. Now, we don't have to be a jerk about it. We don't have to be rude or mean. We can do it through tears, but we've got to stand for what is right and what is true because we are people of the truth. Jesus is the truth, he says, and so we stand for truth. It is not unloving to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In fact, it is born out of love. It is born out of love for God and his truth and love for the soul standing in front of you that desperately needs to hear it. 
And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want, for to see, I want for us to see this morning, and it's this, that the people of peace and love must contend for the faith. That the people of peace and love, which is what we are, that we must contend for the faith. When we look at this, Jude's plain and simple call is, yes, we're going to be contending for the truth, and so the beloved of God, we do. We're the beloved of God. He calls us that. I'll remind you of that every time I preach when I call you beloved. I'm very intentional about that. That is your identity in Christ. You are the beloved. We are, as a church, the beloved, along with all of God's people. The the beloved of God, we have to fight for truth. We're called to. And in this way, (laughs) we're like Superman, in a manner of speaking. I mean, you remember the, the original tagline of Superman, he fights for truth and justice. Well, that's exactly what Christians do. We do fight for truth. We fight for God's justice. We fight for the righteousness of God to be established. And by virtue, when we are fighting and contending for the righteousness of God to be established, we are asking God to eradicate what is wicked. We are asking God to eradicate what is evil, both in others in this world and in ourselves. And so the fight for truth and justice is our fight. It's the battle of our time. From the day that we receive the Lord Jesus Christ until we breathe our final breath, we are contenders for the truth. This is why worldview matters having a solid, consistent, biblical worldview that you can articulate, it matters. How best do we contend in a culture of lies? By being clear on what we mean when we're talking about creation and fall and redemption and restoration and bringing those concepts to bear in conversations with people who want to believe lies. And so we stand firm on truth. That's the best foundation you'll ever find. All other foundation is shaky ground, and it will crumble. I've already told you that Jude, or Judas, is the half-brother of Jesus. He tells us here, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It's interesting. um, He tells us that he's the half, or he doesn't say he's the half-brother of Jesus, but he does tell us that he's the brother of James, and he doesn't qualify it. He doesn't tell us who James is. He just says, I'm the brother of James. Now, there's a reason that he doesn't qualify it. Because the James that he was brother to had been the head of the Jerusalem church. He had been one of the pillars mentioned in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council. He was the writer of the book of James. He was called a pillar of the church by Paul. In other words, Jude is telling us he doesn't need to introduce this James to us. You know who he is. He's known to you. And so he identifies, calls himself the brother of this James. But look at what he doesn't do. He does not mention Oh, I'm also the half-brother to Jesus who was called Christ. Rather than that, what he does say is Jude, a bondservant. The Greek word there is doulos, and literally gener- or slave is more truer to the translation. A lot of people say a bondservant. So I will call Jude, he's a bondservant. He, he doesn't highlight his relationship to Jesus. What he does highlight is his true identity. He says, who I truly am, I'm not placing my relationship to Jesus on the top tier. I'm placing my service to Him and His right to demand my service over everything. Well, that's powerful. That's powerful when you have a blood relation. Of course, the blood relation was also the Lord of glory, so that there's that. But you have this blood relation, and you choose to highlight your servitude to Him, not your relationship. That tells you something about the mindset and the heart of the writer, of humility, but of genuine understanding of what his role in the kingdom of Christ actually is. We are called 
friends, yes. We read that in John 15. But beloved, we're, we're servants. We're called to serve in the kingdom of Christ, to serve Him and serve His people. So I love that He does this. But He's also doing something very intentional, and you have to know the Old Testament to catch it. When He calls Himself the bond servant of Jesus Christ, if you were to read through a lot of the Psalms that mention Abraham or David or Moses, they refer to them as the servants of God or the servants of Yahweh. Jude picks up on that little phrase and calls himself not the servant of Yahweh, but he calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ. Now, this is very important why he does this. For one, Jude is lending his voice to the Old Testament prophets. In a, in a way, he's telling you, I am sharing the voice of Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel. I'm speaking the truth of Yahweh to the people of Yahweh. But in this sense, he uses Jesus Christ instead. Now, why would he do that? Well, for one, he is showing the equality of the Father and the Son. He's not making a distinction that Yahweh is better or Jesus is better. He's reminding us that the servant of Jesus Christ is the servant of Yahweh. The voice that proclaims Jesus Christ was the voices who were proclaiming Yahweh in the Old Testament. He's bringing a certain sense of unity to the two Testaments, to the two ideas, to the Father and the Son, yes, but he's also telling us that Jesus ties these two Testaments together. He is the answer. He is the answer to the covenantal question about the new covenant that we read about in Jeremiah. He is the answer to the question at the end of 2 Chronicles when the people of God ask, who will go up for us? Jesus goes up for us. He goes up to the cross for his people. He contended with evil, death, and sin, and he was victorious. And so what Jude is doing here is he's saying, this is the same story that God has been telling, and I'm continuing to tell God's story to you as we see it through Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's powerful, it's important that he mentions that and he says it that way. But when you see the two brothers here, Judas, and James' name in Greek actually is Jacob. When you, read, when you've trans, when you translate the book of James from Greek to English and you see the, the name Iakaboi, which is the Greek word Jacob, I don't know why English has changed it to James, but literally their names are Judas and Jacob. So you have Jude and you have James here mentioned, but you know what those two names being right there in that sentence, beloved, let me tell you what that should do for us. That should remind us of the power of what the gospel of Jesus Christ can actually do. Brad, what do you mean by that? In his earthly life, um, in, in the Gospels of Matthew, there's this one story where Mary and, and, and Jesus' brothers come to speak with Jesus. Literally, he's teaching, and what they're doing, the implication from the text is they're coming to collect him because he's saying these outlandish things. In essence, Judas and Jacob, Jude and James, rejected the claims of Jesus early on in his ministry. It wasn't until after Jesus lived, died, rose, and before the ascension that these men truly believed in the message that Jesus was preaching. So why is the mention of these two brothers contending for the faith once for all, delivered to the saints, so vital? Because, beloved of God, it reminds us that the gospel can reach the hardest heart, the deadest soul, and the lostest person. I know lostest is not a word. 
I was just trying to stay consistent. It can reach everybody as far as the curse is found. And so we have that hope that this, when you think about contending for the truth and you think about the person standing in front of you and you think there's no way this person is ever going to change. Paul got changed. Jude got changed. James got changed. Peter got changed. I got changed. And if you're in Christ this morning, you got changed. And I will tell people, if God can get a hold of Brad Williams, he can get a hold of anybody. And my mom would probably support that idea. That's my mom right down here. So we have this beautiful idea that we are saved by the gospel, and that gospel can reach everybody. But beloved, let me remind you, you stand here this morning, we sit here this morning, and we stand on the shoulders of giants. Because if you call Christ Lord this morning, I promise you, it's because a person or many persons in history contended for the truth that made its way to you so that now you can now stand and contend for the truth and watch that ripple effect hit the younger generations. We are here, every last one of us, if we are in Christ, those who are in Christ, because someone contended for the truth. And that's a beautiful thought. I love the way he describes believers. He uses three words when he addresses this, to those who are called, beloved in God, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, loved, and kept. Those are the three words that he uses to describe us, that we are called. What does he mean by that? What's he getting at? Well, he's getting the reality that God is the initiator of saving love, that God is the one who initiates the process, that God is the one who called out to us, his people, called us out of the world and into his glorious kingdom. So that God initiates the process and that it's God who saves and redeems. In other words, we don't, we don't help God out. We don't help God along. We don't climb out of the hole and then God saves us. God calls us out of the hole. He lifts us out of the hole. He sets us on our feet. And he's also the one that every time we fall down, he's the one who picks us back up and sets us off and so that we can go. So by highlighting that we are called, we're being reminded God is the initiator. I love that he says that we are literally the beloved in God the Father, that our identity, our true identity, our first and foremost, our identity is loved by God. We are known by the fact that God loves us. Now, we do love him, but that's not how we're known. We're known as those who are loved by God so that when people see us and the way that we interact and the way that we stand for truth, they should say those are the ones who are loved by God. Oftentimes, we reverse it and say, well, you can tell that brother or sister really loves the Lord. I would love for us to get to the point where we can say, man, you can tell that that brother or sister is really loved by the Lord because that's more true to how the Scriptures read, that we are beloved. That is our identity. Our identity is not <laughs> connected to, not even the color of our skin is not our identity our stature, our preferences are not our identity. Those things are not our identity. What our identity is, is image of God, loved by God. That's our identity, and that's where we stand. But he also says that they are kept, that the believers are kept for Jesus Christ. Interesting way to read, because some, some translations will say by, kept by Jesus Christ. I think for is much 
more to the point and kind of is the, the better translation for that preposition because what is, why is he saying that we are kept for Jesus Christ? Well, he's reminding us that a day is coming. A day of consummation is coming. And though we experience all kinds of hardships in our world, we are kept for Christ on the final day when we shall stand preserved in Him, not abandoned, not lost, not destroyed, but victorious. Because we are called by God, loved by God, and kept by God for Jesus Christ. And in that period, we contend for the faith. It's just that glorious reminder that God preserves His people. Beloved, if you're in here this morning, I don't know the struggles you're facing. I'm facing some. But I want to remind you that those struggles are not your identity. Those struggles are not eternal. And those struggles don't have the last word. It may be hard, and for that I, I bleed with you. I pray for so many of you so often, and I have compassion for your circumstances, but be encouraged. You're being preserved. That all the hardships that we face, that's not the end. That's simply an obstacle we get over as we make our way to glory. And I'm not lessening it. Lament, weep, be sad. I'll cry with you. But we have hope because God preserves His people. In verse 2, he gives this prayer, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Again, Jude likes threes. He gives the called, beloved, kept. Now the prayer is mercy, peace, and love. And interestingly enough, he's one of the only New Testament writers that in this initial greeting prays for love to be multiplied. Usually Paul is grace and peace, but if you'll notice, he mentions love in verse 1. He mentions love in verse 2. He mentions that we're beloved in verse 3. Jude is trying to communicate something to us about our identity and God's primary ministry in our lives. It's a ministry of love. But he says he prays for mercy. We all need it. Everybody in this room needs mercy because apart from Jesus Christ, we stand condemned. Born in sin, apart from Christ, we stand condemned, and we need Christ to make that transition from old to new, from lost to found, from dead to living, and that comes by the mercy of God. And so we deserve death. But Christ in His mercy has given us life. And so He's praying for the very thing that we need in our lives. He prays for peace. It might be tempting here for us to say, is He praying for the, us to have inner peace? Well, it could be that, but I'm, I'm convinced it's something different. I think the peace that He's praying there for the people of God is that God would establish peace with His people more and more through Christ. So what we need, you and me, we need peace from God. We need God to establish His peace in our hearts so then we could be at peace with one another, and so then we could have that inner peace. So he's praying that we would know more and more the peace of God in our lives, the peace that only God gives. But then he prays for love, and a love that he says, let it be multiplied for you. What is love? We're renewed in God's love. That's where renewal happens. That's where salvation happens. It comes for God so loved the world, for God loved the world in this way, how it can literally read, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So how does God love? He loves by saving grace. And of course, a myriad other ways, but Jude is reminding us that this is the love 
that we experience renewal in. He said, I want that to you to experience that more and more. In other words, I want you to be renewed again and again and again and again in love in mercy and experience peace. And so this is the prayer that he offers on the front end of this letter. And then now he transitions into, he's kind of telling us about how God sees us, what he's praying for us. And now he's kind of focusing in on the church and what we're called to do. So he says this in verse 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the church, the beloved, those who share in the salvation of Christ, that common salvation, we all have a common salvation, those who are in Christ. He says, I wanted to encourage you in this. I wanted to write a letter and talk about this beautiful gift that we've been given, but circumstances have, have now dictated that he alter course and not write a letter of encouragement, but an exhortation to stand for truth. That's what he's saying. I wanted to encourage you, but now I'm writing you to stand for truth. That word he uses there for contend. That is a graphic, intense word. It's the word we get our English word agony or agonize from. So he's not calling them into this little, you know, slapstick fight or some sort of LARPing thing that's fantasy land. He's saying we have a real, intense struggle, a fight of great value and worth and great intensity because we are called to stand in protection of what is most sacred, which is the faith, the faith that we have as the people of God. Now, it's funny that he definitizes that. The faith, once for all delivered to the saints. So what, what we know now, that by the time Jude wrote this letter, there is a settled Christian doctrine there is a consistent Christian doctrine that he can call the faith that the readers would understand and that they understand that there are expectations, that there are obligations, that there are duties of service. And by definitizing it like he does, the faith, you can't add to it because it's an established thing. You can't take away from it because it's an established thing. And that this is the faith that has been given to the saints. So a standard, a standardized formal system of belief, which we would call doctrine, that the saints have and are supposed to keep. So it's given to the church, and it's completely effectual. This is the message of salvation. This is the message of truth. This is the message that dictates how we live, and it's completely immutable. You can't change it because it's been delivered. It's designed for people to be transformed. You see, what he's doing is he's exhorting the people of God here to stand for God's honor, to stand for God's glory. Beloved, we, that's no light idea to say that we want to stand for the honor of the Lord and we want to stand for the glory of the Lord. In places like China, it costs people their lives or Iran or Pakistan or Afghanistan, but they've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, and they're going to stand for Him. That's the call for every Christian, whether it's in those lands or right here. You see, we're called to be people who keep His truth in the face of those who want to bend it, 
You know what? When we talk, think of something perverted, we usually have connotations that are associated with that word, but just literally perverted just means bent. Something is bent. And so when people want to pervert the truth, they want to bend it to their own will so that it's more palatable to them, so that it's more palatable to the people who would hear it. So what is Jude saying here? I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, to agonizingly struggle for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's calling us to fight. He's calling us to stand. He's calling us to be bold, that we're going to hold to God's ethic, not the world's, that we're going to see Christ as central, Christ as supreme, not ourselves, not the world. It's a call to be bold in the Lord. And he tells us why here in verse 4. Why do we need to do this? Well, here's your causal statement. Because or for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So why do we need to contend for the truth? Because false teachers have already at this point slipped into the church. And what we can say is they continue to slip in. We continue to hear false ideas in our world. We continue to hear people make statements that are, in, that are incongruent with what is true. What's interesting here, Jude makes no bones about what is the state, what is the ultimate outcome for those who are false? He says that they are long ago were designated for this condemnation. Why are teachers judged strictly? Because we claim to be teaching the truth of God, and it is on the head of the one teaching to stay consistent with the truth. When you deviate from that, you have much more to worry about than being liked or not liked. You have to give account before a holy God. And this is an important aspect to Jude. So he's, he's associating their condemnation with the fact that they are kind of peddling false ideas. So he calls them long ago designated for condemnation. He calls them ungodly people. He's just continuing to appeal to the aspect that these people, they are not God-honoring. They are not true. But I love what he does here because this is, and by love, I just mean it's interesting how little humans have changed. Who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go into tons of detail here, but the idea of perverting the message of God to fit with a cultural sexual ethic is just, it's been happening since Jude wrote this letter. People have consistently tried to come into the church and do exactly what Satan did and say, well, did God really say this is right and this is wrong? Well, because no, you're just misunderstanding. The original language doesn't mean that. You know, I've, I've heard that. Oh, you just, no, the Greek doesn't imply that at all. And it's like, you're a liar. It does. It absolutely does. And for millennia, true people of the Bible, we know how to read. We know how to understand the ethic that God prescribes. It doesn't take gymnastics. But beloved, we live in a culture where people are going to challenge it, and we've got to stand for truth. We can't just sit back and act like, well... I just want to love them well, and I don't want to say anything. No, 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 we have to speak up. We have to do so lovingly. 
Yes, please don't hear me say, go grab them by the scruff of the collar and say, what's wrong with you? No, obviously that's the wrong approach. But when I read this this week, I thought, man, we are just some, we can be some uncreative people in terms of just continuing to try to do the same things over and over and over and over that Jude is saying they're coming in, they're questioning, they're trying to turn the grace of God into some sort of doctrine of sensuality, and it's wrong. But what else do they do? The two things that most consistently mark out false teaching, question God's ethic and then in some way deny Christ. Now, they don't outright deny Christ, but they deny Christ, right? Um, They deny some aspect of his life. Well, you know, he's somehow subservient to the Father and, 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 you know, in, in ways that are not biblical, or he's somehow not fully God or somehow not fully human. And the list goes on and on and on and on. He really just wants us to love each other. That's all he cares about. I can't tell you how many times. Well, Jesus really just preached love. And so as long as we're being loving, we're following Jesus. That is denying Christ. Jesus did preach love, but he preached a grounded love that is grounded in truth, balanced in truth, filled with divine grace, but a standard that is set and objective. That's the love of Christ. And so in some meaningful way, these teachers were denying that. And beloved of God, it's still happening. It's still happening. I watch videos. uh, I've been watching some videos for the Colson Center that we've had to critique that just grieve me to the core of my soul of what people are standing up in churches and saying, and they're getting away with it. People to the applause of many. It's hard to watch, but as a brother and an elder and a pastor at the chapel, I tell you, there is a more excellent way than that, and it's called love, and that love demands that we contend for the truth. So often, we get told in this culture that the loving thing to do is capitulation. (laughs) Now, Now, let me give my caveat. Are there situations when loving someone means yielding or giving up? Absolutely there are. There are, and they abound. There are many times where I think we should put ourselves aside and recognize I can love someone and yield something, and it's a good thing for me to do that. It's good for them. It's good for me. So, yes, there are times where we need to yield and give up. But in a culture of lies, it is never loving to stay quiet in the hopes that we won't offend or lose the person. Beloved, I don't love confrontation. I don't like saying, I don't, I don't just relish saying hard things. I'll do it because I have to, but yeah, I would love it if I never had to be confrontative or, or have conflict, but we can't avoid it, not if we're going to stand for truth. Love is never staying quiet. Now, we don't need to be jerks. I've said this. We don't need to be mean. We don't need to be mean-spirited. We don't need to be divisive. I'm trying to work on my sarcasm. We also don't need to be doormats, right? We don't need to just lay down and let people walk over us, not when we hold something more precious than all the money in all the world. We hold the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to know the truth. We need to speak the truth, and we should never, ever, ever apologize for the truth. I can apologize for how I say things if I do it in an unloving way, but truth is true, and we never 
make apologies for what the truth of Scripture teaches. The Holy Spirit, we are told, guides us in all truth. So we have everything we need to contend for Christ. And so my prayer for you and for me as we go through Jude is that the Lord would empower us to stand and speak in a culture of death and lies. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. I thank you for this brief letter and the themes therein and the way it encourages us to be men and women of truth, to be soldiers even, soldiers of truth, be those who fight and wage war because the truth matters, to those who are now conscripted into the armies of heaven, but we do so with joy to stand with our brothers and sisters throughout the ages, throughout the generations, and throughout the world to contend for the truth. Oh, Father, may we never be ashamed of the gospel, for we know it is the power of salvation. And so may we proclaim it, may we live it, may we believe it. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.